The peace of Christ be with you. As we gather here in worship, I invite you to slow down, take a couple of deep breaths, to allow yourself to feel fully present here and fully aware of the Spirit's presence here within and among us. Friends, let us worship in beloved community. Our lecture, Sharon, is filling in at the last minute as a Sunday school teacher for a teacher who fell ill. And so, Brady, I was wondering if you would mind coming and helping me light our first Advent candle. Would you mind? So I invite you to rise in body and spirit for our call to worship. Friends, this is Advent. Friends, let us prepare to birth a new way of being. Friends, let us trust the messages of the angels in our midst. Today we light the candle of hope. Our hope is in the Christ who is God's dream made flesh.
You may be seated. Welcome to worship here at Westminster. It is so good to be with you today. Special welcome to those of you who may be visiting with us. For the first time, it is so good to be together. I do invite you all after worship out to our patio area. We have some coffee, tea, some snacks, and most importantly, a chance for conversation. Chance maybe to get to know someone you haven't met yet before. And then just one more reminder, those of you sitting here in the middle during our offering time, if you'd grab that pew pad, sign it, pass it to the end, pass it back, um, and take a look at the names of people that are sitting near you. Maybe greet one another by name following worship. Let's join together now in our community prayer. Let us pray. While we are waiting, O oh God, come. Transform what is for us we are waiting. Enter our dream spaces and our prayer times that your dream for us might take on sharper clarity. Help us to set this season apart as one not only preparing for presence, but for a deeper and more sacred presence that is a free gift for all the world. Us for all the temptations of this season and deliver us into the peace and promise of your coming reign that we might shelter into being. Amen. Our prayers continue in quiet. Amen. Friends, hear the good news that God loves us unconditionally. God forgives us unconditionally and invites us anew into the beloved community where all are welcomed, all are encouraged to experience the living God. Thanks be to God. Amen. One of the ways we build each other up and grow together as a community is by sharing our joys and concerns. So if you have something you'd like to offer to the community, I invite you to just raise your hand and speak up when I call on you. Who's got our joy? Lee. Congratulations on our new grandson. Jerry Eaton at the first service announced a new grandson in his family as well. Others. That's great. Yeah, Andy. I asked the parents for my family, but my cousin's son Troy is having a kidney transplant surgery tomorrow, and my son Gary's having a surgery. So two loved ones facing surgeries upcoming. Yeah, thank you, Andy. Kirk, you want to will you share a little bit about the alternative Christmas fair? Yeah. 
Well, thank you, and thank you for your leadership, Kurt. You couldn't hear all of that, the Alternative Christmas Fair, even though we're still kind of coming back, smashed all old records. I think in 2019, we raised 13,000. We're over 17,000 already this year, and I had a, somebody bring a check just at the 8.30 service. So that's terrific, money going to people who really need it for organizations doing God's work in the world, caring for people. If you uh, either were a checkout person or somehow worked the fair, maybe you, you staffed a table, would you just stand up so we can see who's here that was involved in that? Look at that. Oh my gosh. And, and that's not even everybody, but it's such a good reminder that church is really lots of people coming together to do the work. So thank you for doing your piece. And if you donated, thank you, because you're, you're what made that happen. Yeah, Jim. mathematically inclined. Well, con congratulations, uh, uh, Matthew, getting married this week. And I hope you enjoy that special time. That's terrific. Bethany. Yeah. Um, I have a joy. I don't know if, I think she can hear back there. Marissa is here with her brand new baby She's for the first oh. time. She's waving to you through the window. She's using a, a baby cry room, which is awesome. Um, but Marissa, it's so wonderful. <laughs> Uh, Teo, right? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? Teo. Yeah. yeah, so it's wonderful to have you guys here with us, Marissa. And then also I request prayers for Georgia, who is the mom of a very good friend of Cammie and mine. Uh, she's had a long journey with cancer, and she's probably in her last few days before dying now. So just prayers for Georgia, for all those who, who love her. I'll continue on the theme of us praying for people. I got notice between the services that... Uh, Sherry's with Liam in the hospital because he took a toy to the eyeball, uh, which is not good. I've seen pictures. So as, as much as prayers for him, she's the one who needs the prayers because <laughs> I just know how she, she will carry stuff. So I'm a little distracted that I apologize for that, but I appreciate your concern. Uh, others... Well, let's join together in a little bit of quiet and come together in the Lord's Prayer. O oh Lord, we trust you meet us where we are. And so in moments of celebration, you are right there dancing with us. In moments of question, you hold a quiet space. In moments of fear, concern, a gentle touch. So we rejoice in you in this moment and we ask your healing touch where we need it. Ask that you would bind us together and together we would grow ever more into the shape of the Christ. And so we join now together in the prayer that he taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts 
as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
today you noticed a few things that are a little different, right? We've got these beautiful poinsettias, we've got the advent wreath, and we lit the candle this morning, all because it's now the season of Advent, the season that we prepare our hearts and our bodies and our lives for Jesus. And it is not, oh, is it winter? I don't know. When does winter begin? The solstice? Not till the end of December? The, uh, no wonder you know this. It's the day after her birthday that winter begins. Okay. So, all right. Okay. So we're, we're still away from official winter, but we are in Advent. And we have a couple of cool things for you all to celebrate Advent. I wanted to share one of, one of them with you. I just, I just printed the first page. We have this thing called a devotional. And the theme this year is God with us. Often during Advent, we talk about Emmanuel. Maybe you've heard that word before. Emmanuel. That means God with us. Jesus born to be with us. And um, what, what happens in this God with us devotional is that you are encouraged to think about all the different ways that God is with us. And I'm going to tell you, and I'm going to tell you, this isn't just for kids. Uh, you can find this on our website under the members section. If you need the password, let me know. Um, but what I encourage you to do is look at this, um, all of you, with, with your families, with your friends. There's some questions for discussion to look at each week. And so this first week is all about family. How is God with us in our families? And we can define family a lot of ways, right? Maybe it's the people who live in the same house as us. Maybe it's people that we're related to. Maybe it's people that we've chosen to spend time with, our chosen family. And some of the questions are, what is a story you like to tell about your family. Ooh, I could come up with some good ones, <laughs> right? But it's so maybe at some point today or this week, you might share, each of you might share a story you like to tell about your family. And then we lit the candle of hope today. The theme for this whole week, first week of Advent, is hope. So what is a story you have heard about your family that gives you hope? What is it, maybe a story about your family that gives you hope? So all kinds of questions like that. But I just wanted to encourage you all and encourage you all to take a look at that. And it's something that you probably won't work through just in a day, but you can take the whole week. And there's a new topic for each week. So take a look at that. And I do hope that you will spend some time this Advent thinking about hope and then peace and then joy and then love as we prepare for Christmas. All right, I think Judy is standing right back there to take you all to Sunday school. Go now in peace, go now in peace, may the Lord.
Before we get to the scripture reading, a bit of context is in order, otherwise you will be lost. At this point in the book of Daniel, the king wants diviners to interpret his dreams, but they are refusing. And you may find out why when you hear the interpretation. They may see what's coming and are afraid to share it with Daniel because it involves his kingdom's, well, I'm sorry, with the king because it involves his kingdom's demise. So in response, the king is ready to kill them all. But Daniel, as we saw last week, wants to step in even to save those who belong to a regime that he may not necessarily agree with. So Daniel steps in and offers his interpretation. And this is that interpretation. Daniel 2, 31 to 49. You were looking, O king, and lo, there was a great statue. This statue was huge with its brilliance extraordinary. It was standing before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of the statue was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked on, a stone was cut out, not by human hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and broke them into pieces. Then the iron clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king of its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory, into whose hands he has given human beings wherever they live, the wild animals of the field, the birds of the air, and whom he has established as ruler over them all, you are the head of gold. After you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over the whole earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, just as iron crushes and smashes everything. It shall crush and shatter all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with the clay. As the toes of the feet were part iron and part clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall this kingdom be left to another people it shall crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from the mountain, not by hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has informed the king what shall be hereafter. The dream is certain and its interpretation trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, worshiped Daniel, and commanded that a grain offering and incense be offered to him. 
The king said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. For you've been able to reveal this mystery. And the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. This is holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Did you catch all that? Okay. We'll get back to that dream in a few moments. But this is, as has been pointed out already, the first Sunday of Advent. And if you were here last week or you otherwise knew it, that means it's also the first day of the new year in the Christian calendar. So happy new year! An appropriate greeting for the first Sunday of Advent. These days it seems like we look forward to New Year's more and more. The hope of a new beginning that it holds within it. Hope, as you've already heard, is the first light of the Advent wreath. I was reminded just this morning that it's the candle that burns the longest throughout Advent, hope, and the hope of new beginnings. Well, if you were here last week, you'll know a little bit of the background of this story, and we kind of pick up where we left off. Last week, we talked about those names you heard a moment ago, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and how they, along with Daniel, when they were recruited to be in the king's court, refused the royal rations. And my interpretation was that because they didn't want to be fed on that which feeds empire, an empire's way of being in the world. And we juxtaposed that way of being in the world with the way of Christ in the world, grounded in faith in God and neighborly love. Well, here you hear this strange dream that others were reluctant to interpret. Because, as Daniel interprets it, it means that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom isn't going to last forever, that others shall come, and eventually one will come and crush all the rest in rule forevermore. And you may be wondering, well, this, this doesn't sound like a god very interested in the peaceable kingdom or getting at the kingdom in a peaceable way. Fair point. To that, I would say a couple of things, though. First, it's always good to notice how quickly we can be to criticize the violence, which makes us uncomfortable, in the Bible, and yet turn around and justify it in our own culture, excuse it in our own world. Well, it's different because we're the good guys, or whatever excuse you want. So just notice that tension. A little context also helps here. If you were a second century before the Common Era Jew, you might hear this passage quite differently. You've been under foreign rule, and your people have been under foreign rule for most of their existence. And so a story of a kingdom in your name with your people rising up and overthrowing those oppressors once and for all and ruling forevermore might feel like very good news. You know, when calls for nonviolence come from the top, 
sometimes you can be a little suspicious what they're really after. It's when they come from the bottom that you know there's power, right? Because they're really giving up something. Now, you don't have to agree with it. I just want you to understand with it. You can imagine when the people who've been kept down for so long see something heroic about somebody rising up in their name. It's sort of like when, when the, somebody finally stands up to the bully on the playground and pops him in the face. Right? We don't advocate that. And it feels a little good to, right, to see it happen. That's a little bit of what's going on here. It makes it all the more striking, though, doesn't it, that it's this kingdom and this God that people, some, uh, come to see manifest and fully embodied in Jesus. It's all the more striking, right? Here's a story about a kingdom that will come up and crush everyone else and rule forever. And Jesus refused to crush his enemies and preached that we should love our enemies. And yet somehow they saw that kingdom and that God in him fully. It's a remarkable thing. You can understand why so many rejected him. Because he took the dream that they may have been having and shifted it slightly, or maybe more than slightly. Remarkable moment. The last thing I'll say about uh, this passage and the violence, at least, within it is, it's a dream. Right? We, we get stuck in these sort of uh, cycles of literalism that just lead us astray. It's a dream. All right? He's not saying, you know, you know, go kill people. Dream belongs to the realm of poetry, of image, of metaphor, of allegory. What we have here is an allegory for what's going to take place on the geopolitical stage, so to speak. And sometimes we can just get lost being so overly literal about these things. But it's a dream. I wonder, I wonder if we pay enough attention to our dreams. So much can be lost if we don't. And if we get caught focusing on the wrong things, on the violence, for example. Yeah, there's violence in this passage, uh, uh, undeniably, just like there is throughout much of the Older Testament. There's also plenty of violence in the Newer Testament. Right? It's, in, it's in Daniel here, it's in John's prophetic vision, a form of dream itself, called the Revelation, last book in the Bible. But the violence in neither case is the point. The point of each is to point us to who's in charge, what will ultimately prevail, and invite us into enduring with integrity while in a difficult circumstance. With the world stacked against us, how do you keep faith? So these epic stories, these visions are cast as a way to signal hope and help is on the way and hang in there because one day everything will be made whole. Do we pay attention to our dreams? Do we take them seriously enough? I probably have shared before when my spouse Sherry was... Um, uh, working as a pastor, she spent some time in Haiti. And while she was there, she said it was commonplace for people to share at the breakfast table what they dreamed about the night before. 
This was not some Freudian obsession. It was simply a signal that they really took the dream world seriously, that it was a spiritual portal through which things reveal to us. Whether it's from God or from our subconscious, you can kind of pick your language system or a little bit of both or something else altogether. There was a different way of knowing that came to us from our dreaming. If you have a spiritual director, well, you should have a spiritual director. It's a good thing to have. If you, if you don't know what that is or would like one, I can help you find one. But somebody walks with you in the life of faith. But your spiritual director might, as mine one time did, encourage you to take a dream journal. Every time you wake up, just jot down. What do you dream about? Maybe God's revealing something to you that you can't hear in your waking consciousness, but you can hear it in your dream consciousness if we would but listen and pay attention. Now, dreaming isn't only for wakeful time, though we could go on and on about the need to, to, to have more room for nighttime dreaming. It's so curious the relationship we have with rest and sleep in our culture. We know we need it, but we routinely brag about not taking it or having it. Now, rest is one of the Ten Commandments, and it's the only one that we brag about breaking. Oh, I'm, I'm, so, I'm so tired because I'm too busy, and, you know, which is another way of saying I'm so important. If I stopped, the world would fall apart. Although that's unfair because, actually, it's bigger than any one person's choice because we've kind of set up systems whereby some people can't afford they have to work so many jobs to make it. They can't afford to rest. And others uh, are in circumstances that are also about bigger powers. And so they don't get to rest either. What a crime that we've created a society where people can't sleep. That doesn't seem right. Particularly if we as people of faith believe that God might speak to us in our sleep. But as I said, it's not only about sleep. You can dream in the daytime too. I, I may or may not know a certain third grader who may or may not at one point have told me that during school, sometimes this third grader may or may not start daydreaming rather than paying attention in class. <laughs> Purely hypothetical example. <laughs> and they may or may not have reported that, in fact, what they're doing is daydreaming instead. And they said to me, perhaps they said to me, it's just so fun. Dad, I mean, I mean, I mean, uh, sir, mister. And can you really argue? I mean, daydreaming is fun, right? It's better than rote repetition of some exercise you're doing. It's fun, and it's actually essential. It's essential for a healthy and vibrant spiritual life. I actually think it's essential for a society. Because part of what happens when you dream and you push out the walls, you make room as you start to reflect on your life and notice what's vying for your attention and maybe you start to do a little bit of sorting and figure out what's most important and maybe you can make a little bit better decisions if you're not so rushed. Well, the problem is we pile so much on top of our mind that we can hardly get out from under it. I was having a conversation just last Sunday with a gentleman who worshiped here for a little while while he was living here and then moved to Arizona right when the pandemic happened. And we were talking about just this incessant need we have for stimulus. Like you can't go wash the dishes without listening to a podcast or, or do chores without watching reruns of Survivor. So I've heard, I wouldn't know anything about that. But always having to have input in, constantly. How many times during the pandemic have you found yourself looking not only at one, but two and maybe three screens at a time? 
Or you're in a room with other people and everybody's listening to something differently, right? We just pile up the stimulus. We're both acknowledging that about our lives and wondering about the impact on us. Next time you go for a run or a walk, maybe take out the earphones or when you're in the store. Sit under a tree for a little while. Have some quiet. I'm preaching to myself too. Don't worry. There are so many, more than ever, outlets uh, vying for room in your head. And they're dumping content all over the place. And so you have to actively work to keep it out. Uh, Bruce Reyes Chow is a Presbyterian pastor in Palo Alto. He was also the former moderator of the denomination. He is probably the most tech-savvy and technologically advanced mainline pastor that I've ever seen. Now, that's not saying much. It just means he's not writing on papyrus. But, but I promise even in another setting, he's savvy. Right? And was way out in front of most of his colleagues in doing things such as social media for the good of the church. But last week, he asked a question after making an observation. The observation was this. I am convinced that Facebook has done terrible things to our culture. And he said it's been a place where people can connect, can form supportive groups where maybe some people don't have access to support near them, can be a place for connection. So his honest question was, if I remove myself from this platform, how could we stay connected? And I think he meant, because he was wrestling with, maybe he should remove himself and not support that, right? Because what does it do? It just floods us with content tailored to your preferences with not necessarily so much concern for truthfulness, right? Asking, should I remove myself from that? But then how would we stay connected? It's not unlike the question we asked in this church about, I don't know, four to six weeks ago, when we started a social media push, which we're doing now, trying to build content so that we can better show people out there what we're about here. But one of the people on our communications team said, should we have a conversation about whether we should do this? Is it ethical to drive people to these platforms that have been the venue for so much harm? Really good question. We ultimately decided that it's our job to meet people where they are and to try to be a light wherever we go. So we will engage in that way. But I can't in good faith encourage you to spend more time on social media unless you set some really good, strong boundaries around it. So you can capture what can be good about it and protect yourself from what could be not so good about it. It has a, an effect on us. This gentleman I was talking to said, you know, there, there are people who have a stake in us being anxious and at each other, which is exactly what those platforms drive at, as well as some of the other uh, sort of larger media entities, right? They have a stake in that people profit, literally and metaphorically, from us being worked up, and notice how you feel next time you log off. Just how do I feel? Do I feel better now or worse? More peaceful, less peaceful, angrier, calm. There are people who have a stake in keeping us that way, right? So he, this, this guy asked a serious question. I thought a profound one. He said, what would it take and how would we disincentivize the production of anxiety and basically hatred. 
So right now there's an incentive to build that stuff because it drives eyeballs, it drives clicks, drives attention, which pulls in advertisers, right? How in your life are you building incentives for yourself not to be anxious or angry or in a hurry? And if you have people in your control, so to speak, maybe in your workplace or your home or your neighborhood, how are you helping give them incentive to be slower and calmer and quieter and more careful and more reflective and a place for dreaming and more careful consideration? So again, as I alluded to earlier, we just pile stuff up, take in, take in, take in, take in, and then what happens is we have no room or capacity for integration for kind of sorting, oh, this is nonsense. Oh, this isn't helpful. I don't think that's true. That's not a reliable source. That doesn't fit with my values. No time for sorting and integrating. And we're also constantly on high alert and anxious and buzzing all the time so that when something comes along that does need our attention, does warrant our mobilization and our shared effort, we are so tapped out and strung out and angry at each other, we don't have anything left to work for that good? How can we incentivize the opposite of hurry? Great question. He shared with me a book that he uh, had read and recommended. I put it in your bulletin. I haven't read it, but I'll be curious to see what you think if you do read it. It's called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. Now that is a title, right? That's your money right there. I think the subtitle is something like how to uh, thrive or do well uh, emotionally and spiritually in a chaotic world. Whew, powerful, right? The ruthless elimination of it because of its destructive value. It pulls at the fabric of our communities. And people don't care about that, but we care about that, right? So we have to protect that. Maybe you know the classic C.S. Lewis book, The Screw Tape Letters. Maybe you've read that. In that you see there's a, an apprentice demon, Wormwood, being trained to be a better demon, pulling people from away from uh, the path of Christ, a loving way of being. Uh, it's so nice that hell has set up like a mentoring program. <laughs> they do like fantastic onboarding. Heaven, you just walk in, I guess, but it, they train you in hell. Well, there's a sort of sequel to the screw tape letters called the Wormwood Files, Email from Hell attempt to modernize it. And I say sort of um, sequel because it's not written by C.S. Lewis, it's written by another gentleman. But the premise is the same. How do we pull people off the path and whip them up into the opposite of the way of Christ? And as the quote in the front of your bulletin says, one of our biggest tools is noise. Right? Noise dependency has become one of the most popular addictions, yet so normal, that's what makes it insidious, that we don't even recognize it as an addiction. Now that's powerful. We don't use the really scary things, we just use noise. Keep them from being reflective. Keep them from dreaming of a different way. And that's the key. Often we run into problems that seem intractable and we just assume there's no way out and I see people all the time just resort to cynicism. We can't because of them or because we don't have enough money or there's just no other way around that. Or we, it's impossible. 
because we're exhausted, we just can't see another way. We can't imagine another way. But the ones who are grounded, the prophets in our midst, the mystics, the seers, what defines them is they literally see it when we can't. It's, it's no wonder King said, I have a dream, and painted a picture of what it could look like, rather than, I have a rational proposition which, that would make for a better society. Blah, who's listening to that speech? But he, like all the others, they could see it. Black children, white children holding hands. You can see that. Once you can see it, where you didn't think it could exist before, you can work and mobilize around it, and together you can come alongside a greater vision. So the crises we have are all fundamentally a crisis of imagination. And if we don't make room for dreaming and imagination, we have no hope. Now, I cribbed that from someone I can't remember who. It's one of the usual suspects, Newell, Rohr. You take your pick of the people I always quote. But it's, it's a crisis not of what you think it's about. It's a crisis of the imagination, being unable to picture a workaround. So our very survival depends on our ability to do that. I'm not going to give you, as we enter Advent, the, the typical anti-consumerist Christmas sermon, right, this year. If you haven't gotten that by now, then it's probably better just to move on. I, I read this weekend someone saying, you know, the real war on Christmas is the fact that we took somebody who said, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and commemorate his birthday by people of money buying things and giving it to other people with money most of the time. That's the real war on Christmas. But I'm not going to give that sermon. <laughs> not going to do it. Tempting, but not going to do it. So I've got gifts I've got to buy this week. Um, but I will offer this sort of shift. Maybe Advent instead is simply about not doing as much and slowing down a little bit more and building it. And I mean get practical. Don't get theoretical here. What am I going to do to make room for the mind to just kind of be and those things to kind of stir? I'm going to take a walk and sit under a tree. I'm going to have coffee or tea in the morning and just be still. Build that in practically. Build your capacity to see what you otherwise couldn't see, attend to what you didn't know was there. That's the invitation of Advent, because Advent isn't just waiting for the baby Jesus to be born, though it's that. Advent is anticipating and preparing the way for the return of Christ in Christ's way in fullness. It's the beginning of a new year, in a new era, in all the hope that burns with it. And that new year deserves a new dream. That's your task this Advent, to dream. Amen.
singing this song that we're about to sing on this first Sunday of Advent uh, because uh, the first verse talks about hope, but then each of the next verses uh, talks about the theme that will come. So we have a verse about peace, a verse about joy, a verse about love uh, as we consider the, the Advent season that is before us. join together in the doxology. seated.
Rebecca, thank you for sharing your gift with us today. Wow, oh, wow. I just... oh. Rebecca and her family have been worshiping with us for much of this past year, so if you don't know her, come say hi, introduce yourself, and thank her, and say, do that again, please. <laughs> A few announcements before we go, and Carol Kaufman, check me if I miss anything here. The first is about diaper duty. Many of you have been picking up a set of diapers whenever you're at the store, especially if you're up at Costco and can get them in bulk, um, that go to the canal area and folks who really need them. The price of diapers has gone way up this year, and it's something folks can't do without. We've been collecting them on Tuesday mornings, but we're trying to open up and make it easier for you. So we're going to do a couple of things. One, anytime the church is open, which is officially Tuesday to Friday, 9.30 to 2.30, but it's unofficially much more often open outside those hours, but it kind of depends on when we have appointments on and off site. But if, if it happens to be open or you want to call ahead, you can bring them anytime, and we keep them in the quiet room where Marissa is and baby Teo right now. During the week, they will move them out uh, on Sundays so our, our children can be in there. You can also continue to drop them off on Tuesdays. That's just fine. And the folks who are collecting the bags of love, those wonderful meals that go down to Sausalito, uh, they can help uh, point, them, point you in the right direction. You can always make a meal while you're at it. Uh, eventually, we're going to have something set up where you can donate money directly to that, we think, so that that can fund the purchase of diapers. And I think we're going to look at making uh, a certain Sunday, I guess it's the first Sunday of the month, so that, that you could try to remember, you know, we're coming for communion, part of what I'll bring is diapers, and you drop them off at the door, and we'll collect them then as a way to kind of up our numbers a little bit. Did that cover it, basically, Carol? Yeah, yeah well, I want to thank you for being a tiger about that. It's um, really pushing that so we continue to care for those in special need. Um, some more leadership opportunities at the church. I had a report on the way in that the Namdang Committee is making great progress on a slate of elders and deacons and folks for the financial review for next year. But I'm sure they could probably still use names. So if you know of somebody who'd be a good leader, I encourage you to, to pass that on to Vince DeQuattro. Again, you can find him in the member section of the website on the directory or just come to me or to Bethany and pass along those names. If nothing else, we always have spots to fill in our commissions. So even if those get filled up, we'd love to round out some of our commissions. So prayerfully consider that for you or for the person next to you. Also, in terms of leadership opportunity, I don't know if you've noticed it or used it yet, but we have a beautiful, functional new kitchen. Now let's keep it that way. So, to that end, our Buildings and Grounds Committee, which has been doing a lot of work lately, would love to identify a couple of people to be kind of on a kitchen crew or be a kitchen captain and just help kind of oversee it's, how it's working, making sure they're good, clear directions up, checking supplies, just really being good stewards of this great thing that you all have contributed to. So if that's a talent you might have, or you know of somebody who'd be perfect for that, again, let one of us know so that we can take care of what we invested in with so much of uh, your hard-earned money. And finally, uh, Jim Snipes from Personnel has an invitation for you all. Thanks, Rob. I'll be brief. I have some good news to report. The Personnel Committee is organizing a celebration of the best team in the Bay Area. 
Not the 49ers. <laughs> not even the Golden State Warriors, who are pretty darn good. Uh, I'm talking about the extraordinary clergy and staff who have carried this church through the pandemic. <laughs> so the event will be at the 10 a.m. worship service on Sunday, December 12th, two weeks from today. Uh, we'll have some presentations, some remarks during the service, some cake afterwards. I hope you all can join. Thanks very much. Thank you, Jim. And I should say this personnel committee has been extraordinary during this time. We've made uh, several hires. They've done some really important strategic work, and we're just grateful all the way around. So we'll, we can celebrate as one. Our closing hymn is number 92, is Rise in Body or Spirit. As you wait for the coming of the Christ child, I pray that you do, in fact, experience the living Christ among you. And as you go from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God who is Father and Mother of us all, and the sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with us this day and every day. Amen.